Well, if you've seen The Lion King, you know that that scene is the turning point in the story. As Simba learns to let go of a past mistake, he's been carrying the guilt of a mistake that he made in his past. And as he lets go of the pain of the past, uh, his life changes. There's new joy, there's new purpose. Distant relationships that were broken or healed, the land that was decimated will be restored. And as we are here today, some of us, I fear, are living a lot like Simba did. We're being controlled by the pain of the past, or we're living with the guilt of a mistake that we've made. And this is something we're going to see as we turn in our Bible today to Genesis chapter 42. Uh, As we've been walking through the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, you'll recall that we began with him when he was a young man, just a teenager at the age of 17. And uh, we saw that he was an arrogant uh, young man. He was a spoiled teenager who was hated by his brothers. And when he was 17, they, they threw him into a pit. They stripped him of his robe, showing his favored status. They sold him as a slave to Egypt. And then we walked with Joseph through 13 years of things that had happened in his life as God was uh, burning away some of the bad things and refining him and transforming him to prepare him to become the prime minister of Egypt, the second in command of all of Egypt at the age of 30. And as Joseph uh, moved into that place, it was because God used Joseph to to, uh, give the meaning of some dreams that God had given to Pharaoh. And he told him there would be seven years of severe famine, and then there will be seven years of abundance. And he was raised up to be the man who would oversee that. And so for the seven years of plenty, he was putting away food and, and preparing for this. And then we saw God was still at work transforming the life of Joseph because he, he gave him uh, two sons, the first of which he named Manasseh, which means God has made me forget. And what we saw last time as we looked at Joseph is it wasn't that Joseph forgot what had happened to him. Rather, what Joseph learned to do was see the past in a different way. The scars that he had were no longer a sign simply of the hurt that had happened, but they were a sign of the healing, of of the way that God had brought him through it. One writer says what Joseph did by naming his son Manasseh was to reshape the significance of the past by putting it into the context of what God was doing in his life. His son became a permanent testimony of God's power to redeem the past. And as we pick up our story today, what we're going to see is that God is still at work, not just in the life of Joseph, but also in the life of his family. His family has been off the page of the story for a period of time, but they're going to come back into the picture today. And we're going to see that God was at work transforming the life of his family as well. At this point in the story, 22 years have passed since that day that his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. Now, some people will tell you that time heals all wounds, but I'm going to disagree with that statement. I think if a wound is not clean, instead of healing, it will fester, it will become infected. And that is what's happened in the life of Joseph's family. There is a wound there, but it's one that has never been cleaned. And today we're going to see how God begins to carry about the cleansing in the life of his family. These brothers have been carrying the guilt of what they did for 22 years. And here we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 2 tell us, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us. 
from that place so that we may live and not die. So here we have a flashback to the hometown of Canaan. And Jacob and the sons are sitting there. There's a worldwide famine. Everybody is, is starving at this point. And they've run out of all their provisions. And, and everybody has run out of provisions except for Egypt. Because remember that God had forewarned Pharaoh of what was coming. And he raised up Joseph to prepare for the famine, to store away what would be needed. And so as others are pouring into Egypt to buy food, Jacob's sons have stayed away. Because I think that this is a place where they're saying, you know, that's where we sent our brother. And and they're afraid that if they go there, they might actually run into Joseph. Or they'll hear what happened to him. Or they'll find somebody who knew about him. And their sin will be exposed. Now, more than 20 years have passed since they sent Joseph as a prisoner to Egypt. But what we find here in the story is the ones who are really prisoners are the brothers. 22 years later, they are still imprisoned by what they did, this sin of selling their brother into slavery. In verses 3 through 4, we see another part of the family's painful past comes to the surface because it tells us, uh, then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob, this is the father, did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Now, in the first sermon in this series, we talked about the family. And you'll recall that Jacob had four wives. And from these four, well, he had two wives and two concubines who served as wives. And from it, 12 boys were born. Now, Rachel was the favored wife, you'll recall. And God had her remain barren for a period of time before he eventually gave her uh, two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest of all the boys, but he was the one born to the favored wife. You'll recall that Rachel was the favorite, and Joseph, as the firstborn of Rachel, was the one that Jacob showed favoritism to. Now, we already know what happened. Joseph was sold into slavery, and it was this favoritism of the father that helped fuel this hatred among the brothers. And here what we see is history repeats itself, because Benjamin the remaining son of the favored wife has now stepped into this position as the favored son. And what happens is Benjamin, uh, this will be a part of the storyline. Benjamin is the favored son. And Joseph later, when we get to Genesis chapter 43, we're going to see where part of the testing that Joseph is doing with the brothers involves this younger brother, Benjamin, because at one point he will give to him five times Uh, the provision that he gives to the other brothers. And what he's doing there, Joseph is trying to see if the jealousy is still uh, rampant in these brothers, these brothers who hated him and sold him into slavery. He wants to see, have the boys changed? And so Benjamin is a part of the story that is happening here, but Jacob keeps Benjamin home. He says he's too precious to risk. Now, remember, we saw that with Joseph. The boys would go out and work in the field and Joseph sat back and did nothing. How would you feel if you were these 10 brothers and your father was saying to you, you guys go to Egypt to buy grain. Now, it's too dangerous of a trip. Something might happen. So if you guys die or get hurt, oh, well. But Benjamin, we're going to keep Benjamin cocooned safe here at home. Now, you may be thinking, well, Roger, you just said he's the youngest. So maybe he's too small to go. No, at this point, uh, Benjamin is easily into his late 20s, if not his 30s. He's a grown man. All of these guys are grown men. They've got children of their own. 
And Benjamin needed to go. If he went, he could take another donkey. He could bring back another much-needed uh, load of grain as his family was starving. But, but Benjamin, Jacob says, Benjamin is staying here with me. Now, Benji's at home and verses 5 through 7 tell us the rest of the sons of Israel go. They come and they buy grain. It says, among those who were coming for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and he spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, I want you just to to linger over this scene for a moment. Imagine how awestruck these country boys from Canaan are. They've been living out in this uh, tent type of uh, existence out in the, the land. They're shepherds. They come into the city of Egypt, the most powerful country in the world at that time. As they walk into the city, it's amazing. And then they come into the palace with all its opulence. And as they're sitting there gazing at all the glory around them, they see the prime minister, the second in command over all of Egypt, is seated up there on some type of a throne set up. And it says that, you know, you remember that Pharaoh commanded everybody will bow the knee. So you can imagine these guards are saying, get down on your face, down on your face. And so they all prostrate themselves before him. Now, as we're thinking about these brothers, I want you to think about Joseph for a moment. And how he felt. You see, it was just another day at the office for Joseph. People were coming in on a daily basis from countless countries to buy food. Joseph is watching just multitudes of people coming in, coming in. And suddenly he hears Hebrew, a a language that he remembers. He grew up to the age of 17. He spoke Hebrew and he hears this. So he suddenly looks around. What is going on? And he notices his band of brothers. Ten men coming together. And it says at that moment, he recognizes them. But they don't recognize Joseph. Now, the last time he saw their faces, remember it was when they were peering down in a hole. After they had stripped him of the robe, thrown him in there. And back in Genesis 37, we saw where they mocked him and they were laughing at him. So the last time he looked up, he saw this ring of faces. And it says they were mocking him. Do you remember what for? He shared their dream in Genesis 37, 7, where he said, I had a dream where your sheaves came in and bowed down to my sheaf. And they laughed at him and mocked him and said, really? We're going to bow down to you? And here it's happening. Joseph suddenly sees the fulfillment of God's dream 22 years previous. And they bow down before him. Now, they don't recognize Joseph, and that's no surprise. I mean, how many of us look like our high school yearbook picture, right? Joseph was 17 the last time the brothers saw him. He was probably sporting a little spotty adolescent beard, uh, you know, the kind that you put a little milk on and the cattle lick it off. And the Egyptians, you recall, were clean-shaven. So here's this, this... gangly teenager with a little spotty beard. And, and uh, the last time they saw him, he was a slave being sold away. And now he's a grown man. 
He's clean shaven. He's wearing fine Egyptian clothing, gold all over him. He's got some ornate headdress on. He, he may have even had his eyes painted like the Egyptians sometimes did. He's, he's speaking Egyptian. We're going to see later in verse 23 that he's using an interpreter. It said he disguised himself, so he doesn't use Hebrew to respond. He, he speaks to them in, in Egyptian. And the, and think of the position, not just the change in his appearance. The last time they saw him, he was a slave, and now he's second in command of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And they're not thinking, this is our brother. They were afraid they'd find out he was some slave that had been killed off, or they might even run into him in some awkward, out-of-the-way place. But here he is, and they're bowing before him. Now, as we're told, they do not recognize him. In the Hebrew text, there's an interesting play on the language because the same Hebrew word is used, uh, the same verb is used when it says to recognize and to treat like a stranger. And you'll recall that this is what they did to Joseph. We saw in chapter 37 how they could not even say shalom, peace. They would not even recognize that Joseph was a brother of theirs. In fact, they treated him worse than you would a stranger. Hospitality dictated you would at least extend courtesy even to a stranger. And they didn't do that to their brother. And so now here they are. They're standing in front of Joseph and they fall on their face. And he recognizes them. And he remembers his dream. Now, how many of us would be tempted at that very moment to say, oh yeah, revenge. I mean, how fun would it have been for Joseph to walk up and look at these guys and then say, well, 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 what do we have here? My big brothers who said they would never bow to me. And as they're on the ground, they're looking, what? Yeah. Remember how you mistreated me? Remember how you you abused me? Well, guess what? It's time for payback. I mean, how many of us would do that? How many of us in that moment would have said, you know, now is my opportunity. And friends, when those opportunities come in our life to either get exact revenge or to extend forgiveness, as those who are believers, we're called on to extend forgiveness to extend the same forgiveness that God has given to us. Now, you may be sitting here this morning going, (laughs) pious platitudes from a preacher. I mean, Roger, you don't even know what I've endured in my life, and you're telling me just to forget and forgive. That's not what I'm saying. I know it's hard. I've shared with you all on numerous occasions before of my own upbringing. When I was at the age of 16, I was kicked out of my house. I was put out on the street by my father because of abuse. My dad was a wife and child abuser. I went through severe abuse growing up. And as I fought my father to protect my mom and my five other brothers and sisters, I was winning most of the fights. And there came a point where my father said, get out. And he disowned me and he said, you're no longer my son. And and I went through a period of hating my dad and, and holding on to hate toward him. And at the age of 17, I came to understand God's grace and I became a believer. And I wrestled with God for two more years. But at the age of 19, when I was up the road at the University of Texas attending college there, as a believer who was growing in my faith, I came to realize I need to forgive my father. 
I didn't understand all that God had done, but as I looked at the cross of Christ and as I read the account where Jesus was being beaten and brutalized and mocked as he died and they were gambling at the foot of the cross and Jesus didn't, he could have called down lightning strikes, but instead he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And I said, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, I have to forgive my dad as I've been forgiven by God. And so I drove back to Dallas one weekend and I found my father. My parents at that point had divorced. Nobody in the family had anything to do with him. And I I told my dad, look, I forgive you for what you've done. And my dad's response to me is, well, I'm glad you've forgiven me, but for what? I've never done anything wrong. Now at that moment, I'll tell you, the humanness inside me welled up and I wanted to just let him have it. But instead, God's grace again was resident. and, and, And I said, you know, Whether or not you accept my forgiveness, it's mine to give. And I said, I forgive you. And I explained the gospel to my dad. And I shared what God had done in forgiving me of my sins and how I was forgiving him. Now, my dad and I had a spotty relationship for a few more years, and then he disappeared. He dropped off the radar for more than 25 years after that. Nobody knew where he was. And about two years ago, I stood up here one Sunday and shared with you that I had just received a call from a hospital in the Dallas area telling me that my father was there, that he was homeless and was hurt, had been robbed and beaten up, and he was indigent and in the hospital, and somebody had to take care of him. And at that moment, it's kind of like Joseph standing before the brothers. Uh, I, I can tell you that my mind flashed for a moment with, well, he's getting what he deserved. I was homeless and hurt at 16, and here he is. I mean, the the human side wants to say, good luck with that. You're getting what you deserved. But I went to Dallas, and I arranged his care, and I took care of him for about six months up through a care center there before he, he passed away. And during that time, my father came to faith in Christ. And... I'm still dealing with the fallout with five siblings, some of whom made peace with him, some who haven't. So as I tell you that God says we are to extend forgiveness, I'm not just sitting up here spouting some pious platitude saying, I don't understand. I don't know your particular story, but I know God's story. And I know how he forgave us and how he calls on us who call ourselves Christians to take the hurt and the pain of the past and nail it to the cross and to leave it there. And say, God, you are capable of washing away this sin through your blood. You are capable, God, of carrying away this hurt. And that's what God calls on us to do. As we look at Joseph, as we look at what he does next, it may look like for a moment he's getting a little revenge. It said he spoke harshly to them. You you may think, well, he's being a little rough on his brothers to get some payback. But what he's really doing here is he's testing them. In fact, that word is used in the text, he tests them. You see, if you take a cup and you shake it, what's inside comes out. Or if you squeeze something, what's inside comes out. And what Joseph is doing here is he's applying pressure to see, are these guys the same thugs that they were over two decades ago? Or have they really changed? If Joseph had said, I'm your brother, have you changed? They would have said, oh, yes, sir, we have. But he says, I want to find out. Remember, Benjamin isn't there. Joseph is going, where's Benjamin? I mean, for all he knows, they did the same thing to to his younger brother as they did to him. And so the text tells us in verses 9 through 20, Joseph remembered the dream which he had about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of of our land. 
And then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man, and we are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Oh, if they only knew. Joseph said to them, It is as I have said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. There's our word. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them together in prison for three days. Nothing like a few days in the clink to loosen you up, right? Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Now, when they said, we are honest men, you know, it probably took everything Joseph had not to laugh out loud. Kidnappers, attempted murderers, lying to our father for 20 years that I'm dead. The list goes on. But, oh, we're not spies. We're honest men. You know, how many of us are like that when it comes to our sins? How many of us look at other people and we go, how can they even show their face here at church? How can that person even think that God could love them and forgive them for what they've done? And you see, what we do is we pick our sins. We say, well, I didn't do that sin like them. They're so wretched and horrible, but lying, gossiping, stealing, you know, on and on the list goes. I'm guilty of those, but like these guys, we're certainly not spies. I mean, I certainly haven't done that sin. You know what the Bible tells us is that God sees all of us for who we are, sinners, we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned. God knows about each and every one of us, each and every one of our hidden sins. And he says, we're all sinners and we're all deserving of the penalty of death. But Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God extended his love. He showed his grace. He saw what we have done. And in order to be saved, what we have to do is we first have to recognize we're sinners. We have to admit it. We have to say, we have blown it, God. And because of that, we owe a penalty. A penalty, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, if you will confess that you are a sinner, that you will say, I have a need to have the penalty paid for and recognize Jesus did it for us. That's why he died on the cross. He paid that penalty for you and me. And when we accept that gift, allowing him to die in our place, the Bible says we will be saved. As we look at what's happening here, what we see is the first step takes place. Verses 21 through 22 tell us, then they said to one another, 
Truly, we are guilty. They're confessing their sin. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we would not listen. Therefore, this, his distress has come upon us. Reuben answered, and he said to them, Did I not tell you? Well, I told you so 20 years later, right? Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. But now comes the reckoning for his blood. You know, what an amazing and profound turn of events. These guys have buried this for more than two decades. I'm sure that as they looked at each other and things came up, reminders, they all just said, we're not to speak of it. No, 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 we're not going there. And this has been hidden away, buried for over 20 years. And suddenly they're in a position where they're all in a jail cell together and they start talking about it and saying, we deserve this. We did this. I mean, they're in distress and they say, do you remember the distress of our brother? How he was in the pit crying out? Do you remember they were eating lunch and laughing while he was down in the hole crying out for mercy and that they would spare his life? And it says, as we were doing this, verse 23 says, they don't realize Joseph, who's right there, is listening. They're they're thinking, you know, he doesn't speak Hebrew. And they're talking among themselves. And as Joseph hears them confessing their sin, It says in verse 24 that he turned away from them and he wept. The dam begins to break on both sides. Joseph has been carrying this hurt all these years, wondering, did his brothers even care? Did they even think about him again? And here they are 22 years later in front of him saying, we did a horrible thing to our brother. And as their hearts begin to melt, God begins to do his healing work, not just in Joseph, but in his brothers. And until we get to that place of repentance in our own life, where we ourselves will admit to God, we have made a mistake. God, we have blown it big time. We sinned against you. Until that time when our hearts begin to melt, if they stay hardened, whether or not we know it subconsciously or consciously, we will remain chained to the past. We carry around that that weight, that hurt, that anger in our lives for what has happened, the pain of the past. Some of us here today have been trying to run from the pain of the past. Some of us here today are so ashamed of something we've done in our past. It could be an abortion. It could be somebody that we slept with. It could be something that we stole. You can go down the list and fill in whatever hidden sin it is that you've been carrying around and saying, if anybody knew this about me, they would turn away from me. They would throw me out of this church. No, we would not. Because friends, we are all guilty of some hidden sin in our life. And when we think we've hidden it, when we think we've got it just kind of taken care of, God looks at us and he says, I know all about it. Just admit it. Just come to me and let it go. Nail it to the cross. Leave it here at the foot of the cross where the blood of my son Jesus will wash it away. I have already died for your sin. I have already paid for it. You know, when we try to hide our sin, do you know what happens to us? The Bible describes it in excruciating detail. You remember there was a man by the name of David. He was king over Israel. And we're told about one of David's sins where he saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And it says that he lusted after her and he took her. He, he slept with her. He commits adultery. 
And Uriah was a special man. He was part of David's inner circle, a bodyguard for the king. This is his best friend's wife. And he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant and he goes, oh no, I've got to cover up my sin. And so he brings Uriah back from the battlefield. He tries to get her to, him to sleep with his wife, but he's such a man of integrity, he won't do it. He says, the ark of God is out in the field. How can I enjoy pleasures? And ultimately, David says, I've got to, this guy's not cooperating with the plan, so he has David murdered. Now, David hides all this sin, one thing upon another, trying to hide it. But God says, I know what's going on, and it's going to come out. And this is what David says in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with, as with fever, as it, like the heat of the summer. David's describing this crushing guilt that he carries of his sin. But then he says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And that's what God will do for us. He says, some of you are sitting here this morning holding on to some hurt from the past, carrying some guilt of a mistake that you've made. You're, you're, you're harboring the hate for somebody who hurts you. And what God says is you are the one who has been crushed. It's affecting you. And you know how it affects you. And what God says is, if you will just admit it, if you will give it to me. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. You put your special sin in there and God says, I've got it covered. And you're forgiven. Now, in order to be forgiven, it says, it's a conditional clause. It says, if we confess. The word confession is homo legeo. It's two words, homo same legeo, to speak or say. It literally means to say the same thing as God says about our sin. And what God says is, when you say what I say about your sin, it's wrong. And it needs to be dealt with. And he says, I dealt with it. You can allow my blood to pay the penalty or you can hold on to it and deal with it on your own someday at the great white throne judgment where you will be sent to hell, where you will pay the penalty of the second death. And he says, if we confess our sin, if we say to God, I blew it, no excuses, don't try to justify yourself. You see, as the brothers confess their sin here, we see that. In the Hebrew text, the word we is in the emphatic text, emphatic form. And what that simply means is the emphasis is on them. You see, what they do is they say, we are guilty. We saw the distress he, he said, we would not listen. They're not saying, you know, it's Joseph's fault. You know, if he hadn't been such a toot, if he hadn't been so arrogant and bragging and rubbing our face in it all the time, you know, he really brought this on himself. Or, you know, it's dad's fault. Dad gave him that, that pretty robe we all wanted, and dad showed favoritism. And remember how passive dad was, as we talked about in a past message? You know, it's, it's father's fault, or it's Joseph's fault. Uh, or, you know, hey, we were really young. I mean, everybody does dumb things when they're young. You know, we're grown, we're older. We wouldn't make that same mistake. They don't do any of that. They don't justify. They don't push off their sin. They say, we did it. We were wrong. We're guilty. And we're getting what we deserve. And what God says is if we will do the same thing, we will not get what we deserve. Instead, we will be given mercy and grace. 
because God will forgive us our sins and he will say, I paid the penalty for you. I washed it away. Paid in full as we saw on Good Friday. And God raised from the dead as we celebrated last week at Easter. He said, I conquered sin and death. I buried it. I took care of it. I've put it in the deepest ocean and I put up a no fishing sign. It's never to be brought up again. It's covered and gone. Now, Joseph is willing to forgive his brothers as well. But first, remember, he has to find out, is Benjamin really alive? So verse 24 says, he took Simeon from them and he bound them before his eyes. Now, we're not told why Simeon is chosen, but Reuben was the oldest. And Joseph just heard Reuben saying, look, I tried to rescue Joseph. And Joseph goes, good stuff. Okay, Reuben, you're, you're off the hook. Simeon, you're the next oldest. You're the guy. So he puts him in prison. Now, the text tells us what Joseph is doing, as we're going to see in in some coming chapters, is he wants to see, are these guys going to abandon another brother to save their own skin? Remember, they abandoned Joseph. And he says, have you guys really changed? So this is one of the tests that are taking place. Verse 25 says, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack. They've come, they've paid for the grain, and Joseph tells the stewards, I want you to slip their money back in the bag. It's on me. Count it to my tab. I'm paying for the grain. And it says he gave them provisions for the journey. Here's grace, friends. He's not only sold them the grain, but he outfits them. Here's food. Here's water. Here's traveling things. You know, go. And thus it was done for them. Now the text goes on to tell us how the brothers leave Egypt. And when they stop for the night, one of them opens a bag of grain to start to feed his donkey. And he says, my money's in here. And and he calls the brothers together and he says, look, here's what I paid for the grain. And their hearts sank, verse 28 says. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? You know, some of us would be happy. Woohoo! I got my money. But it says they're dismayed. And they tremble. The word is a very vivid word. It's it's used of an earthquake. They're literally shaking. They're scared out of their minds. Uh, they, They say, God is out to get us for what we did. St. Anne of Austria once said, God does not pay at the end of every day, but at the end, God pays. God does not pay at the end of every day, but at the end, God pays. And these guys are saying, What is God doing? We thought we got away with it two decades ago, but God is getting us. We told the guy we were honest and now we we look like thieves. We have our money. Now there's a lot more going on. If that was really all they were worried about, you know, they're just a day out of Egypt. They could have easily turned around and gone back and said, hey, we don't know how this happened, but the money's here. Here, Here's your money back. But instead they hightail at home. They don't want to go back. And, and they, they get home and, and they tell their father all that happened. Hey, dad, let me tell you what happened. He's going, didn't I send 10 of you guys? There's, there's only nine of you. You know, every time you guys go out, uh, you come back with one less brother and money in your pockets. What's going on? Remember they sold Joseph? Hey, you know, where's Simeon? 
Well, listen, Dad, how, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. We were there, and the, for the prime minister, he says, you guys are spies. No, 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 we're honest men. And, and, you know, we go through this whole thing, and we say, look, there's 12 of us. His dad goes, what'd you do that for? You told him Benjamin? We'll get to that, because, you see, he wants us to bring Benjamin back, because we can't get Simeon unless we show him Benjamin. And Jacob goes, what are you guys doing? This is horrible. And as all this is happening, it says they're unloading, and they're pouring out the grain into the bins. And you know what happens? As they're pouring out the sacks, chink, there's another bag of money. What happened? Another guy pours out his bag. His money's in there. And they start going, this is terrible. As they, as they fill the bins with grain, there's, there's all their money. And they go. It says in verse 35, they were all dismayed. Again, you'd be going, hey, We've got food and we've got money in the bank. But it says they were dismayed. There's a true story that was in the news many years ago. There was a a man and a woman who went to a Kentucky Fried Chicken. They went through the drive-thru. They wanted to get some food to go to the park and have a little picnic. And so they pick up their food. They drive to the park. They get out and they're opening the bag and the boxes and they're getting all the chicken out. And one of the bags they open has a bundle of money in it. There's an enormous amount of money. What is this? And the guy says to the woman, we've got to take this back. This isn't our money. And so they pack all the food up. They get back in their car. They drive back to the restaurant. The guy goes in and he says to the, is the manager here? Yeah, the manager's here. The guy's in the back. He's running around, turning things over, you know. And he, no, I don't have time. He says they have to see you. They've got something. So he comes out and says, what? What, What's going on? And the guy says, "Uh, hey, look, we got this chicken and there was this money in the bag, and the manager is ecstatic. You see, what had happened is he was putting together the day's deposits to take to the bank. And he had put the money in a bag, set it aside. Well, one of the, the folks accidentally grabbed that bag and included it with the chicken order and sent it out the window. And so the manager was looking for the day's deposits. And the guy says, look, we, we got this money, and it's not. He says, oh. Thank you. He says, you guys, I, you, you have such great integrity. on it." He says, I'm going to call the news. He picks up the phone. He says, I'm going to get a picture of you. We're going to tell everybody there are still honest people in the world. This is great. And the guy goes, no, 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 don't do that. And he hangs up the phone. Major goes, why? And he goes, listen, that, that lady, I'm married and that's not my wife. I don't want my picture on the news with her. Remember what I talked about before, how we pick and choose which sins or, you know, this guy's honest. I'm not going to steal money. This isn't ours, but he's, he's out having an affair on his wife. And he says, don't put, don't put us on the news. This is Jacob and the boys. These guys have got baggage, but just loads of sin they've been hiding, you know, and, and they're saying, you know, we're, we're not thieves. I don't know dad how this, we're not spies. And, and, but they got all this other guilt they've been hiding. And the problem with sin and guilt is that when we carry it, it's, it's something that gets in the way of good things, isn't it? This guy should have been put on the news. Wow, but he couldn't do it because of some other sin in his life. And sometimes God is trying to give us grace and we miss it. Now, please hear me correctly. Don't send me an email saying, Roger, it's wrong to steal. They should have returned the extra money. Yes, they should have. If somebody gives you too much change at a, at a counter, give it back. If you're in a business and somebody doesn't charge you for something or you have not, be honest in your dealings. 
That's not what I'm saying. The point of what we're looking at here, we're going to see when we get to Genesis 43, 23, is that the boys bring the money back. When they return to Egypt to buy more grain, they come back and they say, look, we have all this money and it's yours. We don't know how we got it. And the steward is going to say, oh, no, no, I have your money. God gave that to you. You see, God and Joseph were providing for this family from afar. It was grace. But these guys couldn't see grace because they were were just crushed under the guilt of their sin. They were so blinded by the past, they couldn't see the present blessings and joy. The the default reaction of those who live in guilt is they see everything in a negative way. You remember their reaction? God is out to get us. Have you ever read Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Telltale Heart? Do you remember that guy murdered somebody? He hid the victim and he thought, I got away with it. But then as the story progresses, you know, he hears the beating of the heart and the inspector, and he, everybody knows what's going on and why, why, you know. All he was hearing was his own heartbeat. But he was being hounded by guilt. And it's the same thing here with the boys. They're hounded by their past guilt. And so they see everything through that lens of God is out to get us. We deserve to be punished. You know, I talk with people sometimes who are consumed by their guilt. I've sat across from men and women who tell me they are so down in the mouth about everything. They said because it's, they're carrying some past pain or guilt and they say, God is just out to get me. I've talked to people before who God is blessing their socks off. And and I say to them, I say, look at all the good that is happening in your life, on and on. And I actually had a man one time tell me, well, you know why God is doing this, Roger? He's he's moving me higher and higher and higher up the ladder just so my fall will be bigger when he kicks the ladder out from under me. I mean, talk about an Eeyore personality. Here was a guy who said, God is only lifting me up to make my splat that much bigger. Friends, the scripture doesn't tell us that God is sitting up in heaven with his finger hovering over the smite button saying, I'm going to get you, just wait. What the Bible says is his mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. God is a God of grace and mercy. Yes, he is a God of justice. And when we sin, there are consequences. And when we refuse to turn to Christ, we will have to pay that penalty ourselves. But what he says is when you come to me, when you come to my son and you accept the great gift of life that I offer to you, eternal life, and that you may have abundant life in this world. He says, if, if you're here today and you're saying, you know, Roger, my life, because of mistakes I've made in the past, God says, don't just close the book. He says, turn the page when you turn to me. The story is not over. There is a story of grace and redemption. And as we look at this family, they hadn't turned the page. They were still living with the guilt and the pain of the past. And this included their father. Look at verse 36, because Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. You see, as Jacob lives in the pain of the past, He's missing the blessings of the present. I mean, remember, the boys have just come back and said, listen, the second most powerful man in the whole world just accused us of being spies. You know what would happen to spies? They'd be killed on the spot. 
At the, the very least, they'd be thrown into prison with Simeon. And he's saying one boy is missing, but there, he's missing that there are nine standing in front of him. This father could have rejoiced and said, thank you, Lord, for bringing back nine of my sons when I could have been bereft of all of them. And as the money is sitting there in the piles of grain, all he's looking at is the money instead of saying, you know, a few weeks ago, the grain bin was empty and we were starving. And now look at the provisions that God has provided for our family. He misses it. You know, all that was needed to clear their name was to, to take Benjamin back and then Simeon would be able to come home. In verse 37, Reuben even offers his, his own two sons as collateral. He says, look, Dad, if when we go, I don't bring Benjamin back, uh, kill my own boys in, in place. I'm, I'm telling you, Dad, I'm putting it all on the line. These are my kids in place of your cherished son. But even then, Jacob, the patriarch of the family. Remember Jacob was renamed Israel? Do you remember that in chapter 32, he had an all-night wrestling match with God? This is a man who at this point is around 100 years old, and he has, he has faced the angel of the Lord. He's striven with God. And at this moment, the father should have turned to God and said, God, we need you. But instead, he buries his head in the sand. And he says, we're not going to talk about this. Now, as we come back next week, we're going to find that he's eventually going to have to deal with it because the food is going to run out. The famine, remember, is seven years. They're only a year or two into the famine. And they're eventually going to have to go back to Egypt. And we're going to see where the sons remind him, Dad, the man said, unless we bring Benjamin back, you will not see my face. That's what we'll come to next time. But before we get there, I want you to remember this today. God doesn't want you to be paralyzed by the pain of your past. God offers you the opportunity to release the guilt that you've been carrying this morning, the pain of the past that you're dealing with. As we think of this story that we've been looking at, we may not have sold a brother into slavery, but every one of us here has sin in our life. And as Christians, God does not want us to be kept prisoner to the mistakes we've made or the pain of the past. What God says to us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, each of us here today are guilty of past mistakes. Father, each of us here are bearing scars of the pain of the past where others have hurt us. Lord God, would you help us this morning to come to the cross of Christ? Would we lay those hurts at the foot of the cross? Would we take the hurts of the past and nail them to the cross? Lord God, your blood is capable of washing away our sins and is capable, Lord God, of washing away the, the pain of the past in all of our lives. And so I pray today, Father, that each of us would turn from our past, turn from our mistakes, Turn from our sins and turn to you, Jesus, to be our Lord and Savior. 
If there's anyone here today, Father, who's not yet found freedom in Christ, coming to you and becoming a believer, I I pray today, Lord, would be the day where they confess that they've messed up, that they would see their need for you as a Savior, Jesus, and they would turn to you and be saved. And Father, for the rest of us who have been forgiven by you in the past, may we remember that you still love us, you still forgive us, even when we've made mistakes. Would we do what you tell us in 1 John 1, 9 and confess our sins and find that forgiveness? And Father, as those who have been forgiven by you, would we extend that same forgiveness to others? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our prayer leaders at the front, if you need somebody to pray with you today, they would love to do that. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.